just the like blinding speed with which Twitter scrolls past and stuff like that. I like things like email particularly because it's just that slower like I can star things and then come back to them and it just feels that much more curated in that sense um, and it's been interesting to me as well with um, starting this new work with the browser curating podcast episodes for them recommending the best podcast episodes I come across um, and we're launching this new sort of daily service with that now is I've had to come to terms with the fact that people read it because they like what I have to say and as we said before like this is kind of slightly a, a new thing I'm trying to get my head around and that actually my taste in things is something that people will subscribe to in the most literal sense um, and that's I think I just have to you know get a bit more self-confidence about it but it is also part of this new way I think that people are consuming media is they want it filtered through the taste of somebody that they trust if that makes sense. Hello and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionised work. Each week I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod. On Twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. This episode's guest is Caroline Crampton. Caroline is a journalist, podcaster and soon-to-be author. She's worked for many years for the New Statesman as digital editor and later as head of podcasts. She writes about podcasts for newsletters, including Hot Pod and now The Browser, which, from yesterday, has started delivering a daily selection of Caroline's top podcast recommendations. Caroline also makes a podcast, She Done It?, it unravels the mysteries behind classic detective stories, and if you're a fan of Dorothy L. Sayers' novels, you'll find a lot in there to like too. It's been nominated for Smartest Podcast at this year's British Podcast Awards. Caroline also has a book coming out later this year, The Way to the Sea, which is about the Thames estuary. That's where her parents docked after sailing to England from South Africa over 30 years ago, and they never ended up leaving. Just always remember Podcasting 101, if someone mentions a boat, always ask for the name of the boat. I forgot to. Caroline, if you're listening, could you just tweet me the name of your parents' boat? Cool, thanks. Caroline also tells us what she looks for in a podcast when reviewing them for her newsletter gigs. My name's Caroline Crampton. I'm a freelance writer and podcaster. I'm the author of the book The Way to the Sea, which is out on the 6th of June. I'm also the maker of the She Done It podcast, and I write for the Hot Pod newsletter and the browser. So I first started doing my own newsletter in, I think it was 2014, like sort of autumn of 2014, um, which I called No Complaints, um, which was ironic because I had many complaints. Um, and, you know, I was sort of like deep into many years of working on a staff job and feeling like, 
you know, I had plenty of fulfilling things going on, but feeling like I didn't have that outlet, like you say, like I maybe I, I wanted to have a column or I wanted to have an outlet where I could share the things that I thought were good. And that wasn't quite being represented necessarily in my day to day work. So I started this just on tiny letter, started doing a sort of weekly newsletter where I linked to things that I thought were good articles podcast videos etc and I would sometimes just have a bit of a rant at the top as well and I think I was fortunate in that I did I was doing that around the time that tiny letter was becoming a thing and so it got linked to in a few different roundups of you know magazines doing trend pieces and stuff saying newsletters email it's a thing again um so I quite quickly ended up with a few thousand people subscribed to it and so I carried on doing that for a few years really and every so often I would meet someone in the course of my day job or uh, you know at an event or something and they'd be like oh my god you're Caroline you do that newsletter and it was as you say like this physical manifestation of this sort of invisible community I almost didn't know that I had a lot of the time Um, and then although I never really got paid for doing no complaints it was always just a free thing I did it has inadvertently led to quite a substantial portion of the work I do now because via that I first met uh, this guy called Nick Kwa who runs a big newsletter called Hot Pod in America which is essentially the trade publication for the podcast industry it's um, you know weekly bi-weekly and it covers all the major developments in the podcast industry and it has a paid tier as well and when he was looking to hire a second reporter beyond himself for that he knew me from my newsletter writing we'd chatted about newsletters in the past and he hired me Um, and then it happened again more recently with the browser which is a curation newsletter that's been going for I mean I think over 10 years now it has over 10,000 paying subscribers for its daily recommendations of the best articles on the internet they were looking to expand into doing podcast recommendations and they knew of me through my work on my own free newsletter so they came to me so although I'm sometimes I'm quite dismissive of that little free newsletter I did and I definitely don't keep up doing it as regularly as I used to I should probably you know I should be more thankful for it because it's put me in some in the way of some amazing work just the like blinding speed with which Twitter scrolls past and stuff like that. I like things like email particularly because it's just that slower, like I can star things and then come back to them and it just feels that much more curated in that sense. Um, And it's been interesting to me as well with um, starting this new work with the browser, curating podcast episodes for them, recommending the best podcast episodes I come across. Um, And we're launching this new sort of daily service with that now is I've had to come to terms with the fact that people read it because they like what I have to say. And as we said before, like this is kind of slightly a a new thing I'm trying to get my head around and that actually my taste in things is something that people will subscribe to in the most literal sense. Um, And that's, I think, I just have to, you know, get a bit more self-confidence about it. But it is also part of this new way, I think, that people are consuming media is they want it filtered through the taste of somebody that they trust if that makes sense so i think what makes a good newsletter can also be what makes a good podcast or a good blog or even like a good instagram feed to be honest and it's just feeling like you know the personality of the person making it and if that personality is something that you identify with and you like then 
that's going to be a newsletter that you're going to open the second it hits your inbox every week. Um, I definitely have that relationship with some people who write newsletters. Um, Anne Friedman is definitely one. She's someone I've subscribed to for years. Um, Jean Hannah Edelstein is another one. Um, where the second I see their emails land, I open them as rapidly as I would an email from a friend, even though I don't know them and I've never met them. Um, because it just feels like a medium that has that intimacy and that direct contact between them to me in a way that I think a podcast can as well, because you are most of the time speaking to someone, they're on listening on their own on the tube, they've got their headphones on. It is almost like you're just whispering in their ear. It's not you know, like a piece of journalism that goes up on a website and millions of people maybe are reading it all at the same time. So yeah, I think definitely that sense of immediacy and personality makes for a good newsletter. But also, a lot of the things that make any digital creation good or successful apply to newsletters as well. So stuff like being really consistent, doing it at the same, you know, if you say you're going to do it every Friday, actually do it every Friday. Um, keeping it within the bounds of the form that you use. So like, you know, Gmail has that cutoff point. If you make a newsletter too long um, or an email too long, Gmail won't display the whole thing. So just make sure it's the right length. All of that kind of stuff, which I think sometimes when people embark on these kind of digital endeavours, they think, oh, that's boring. You know, I'll just do it whenever I fancy. But if you are serious about building it into something that could lead to professional advancement for you or whatever, those are the kind of boring things you have to think about. I should caveat with that, saying when I started doing No Complaints, I was not thinking about trying to turn it into a job. I was just feeling slightly pissed off. Um, and that kind of thinking came later. I was doing this job where I was the digital editor of a website for a magazine. So I had a few years experience of thinking about audience. And I think at the time, part of the reason why I was feeling a bit down in the dumps was that we were going through a big redesign of the website. So I was constantly thinking about who is our audience, what do they want and how do we best give it to them? So I think subliminally that was all happening in my brain anyway. But what I'd never done before, and this is something that I'm still learning about and still thinking about is what it means for me as one person to have an audience in that way versus what it means for like a publication to have an audience. So it's definitely the case that there is a no complaints audience. I've seen it when I've done events, you know, and I've just said in the news that, oh, by the way, I'm doing this um, this event in London next week if anyone happens to want to come along. And then people from the newsletter turn up. You know, there are real people who actually do things sometimes when I suggest them. And that, I think for me as someone who's, you know, I've never been like a star columnist. I've always been an editor that makes the star columnist look good kind of thing that's something I still grapple with the idea that oh no people are actually just reading this or turning up for me and for what I have to say but I definitely my defining experience with it was like yours at a conference um hot pod the American podcast newsletter that I write for um sent me to this big audio conference in Chicago last autumn called third coast um and that I think is my one and those four days, my one and only experience of what it must be like to be an actual famous person, because there I think were 800 delegates at this conference and all of them knew who I was to the point where people were coming up to me in corridors and being like, are you Caroline Crampton from Hot Pod? Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to meet you. That has never happened to me in my life. And I, I was thinking about it on the plane home. I was like, well, I guess maybe for those 800 people. I am kind of like a star columnist or something. They read me every week in 
what is essentially the industry bible and you know some of them like what i have to say but yeah that was definitely a new experience for me for a lot of the time that i was doing that job as the editor of the new statesman's website i wasn't really doing anything on the side like i was doing this one little newsletter on a friday afternoon that i used to write on a thursday night and it used to take me about half an hour to write it and i would deliberately do it as fast as possible because i didn't want it to kind of expand into something that i would feel like was a chore i just wanted it like bash it out and feel like i'd done it um but that was it you know i didn't do tremendous amounts of freelance writing for other publications or I used to sometimes berate myself with the fact that I wasn't doing that I felt like I should be you know hustling on all sides but I just didn't have the energy I just found that kind of thing really draining so it was with great trepidation actually that I kind of left doing that sort of as you say like I think of them as like facilitator jobs what a lot of what the gaps in journalism in the last 10 years have been for people who are good facilitators not necessarily good writers or reporters or you know you might be that as well but I definitely think that my skills uh, as a sort of staff employee were as someone who could make other people do stuff and keep it all running on time you know no one was interested in the beauty of my prose or whatever but um yeah, so I, it was with great trepidation that I sort of stepped away from that to become freelance because I kind of thought, well, if my one selling point is that I'm good at facilitating things for other people, if I'm freelance, who am I doing that for? I, I can't sell that skill anymore. I am just going out there trying to make people pay me to do stuff with writing and audio, which are the two things I sort of know how to do. Um, so, yeah, that was very scary for me, having not had that much time to pour energy into doing that stuff on the side really when I was first hired as a web editor I think I was the website at that time the New Statesman's first full-time employee on the website up until that point it had always been like part of a bigger job that people were doing magazine etc as well and then by the time I left I think the website has about 10 employees now like it the scope of the job grew enormously while I did it and that really represented that crossover I think from print to digital um i think like in a lot of places there's still various hang-ups about the web being quote not as good or whatever but um you know the the numbers don't lie essentially but um yeah i think it it is interesting what you say about inventing your own job i definitely feel like i do that every day if you'd asked me in 2017 when i left full-time employment in journalism what my job would be I would not have come up with the current mixture of, well, I I write a curation newsletter, I write a newsletter about the podcast. I would not have come up with the disparate list of stuff that it now contains. Um, that That's a complete, that's an invention on the fly, I think. Here, Caroline tells me how she got started in journalism. I did a master's in newspaper journalism at City University, as I think quite a a lot of people who go on to do journalism do that kind of postgraduate diploma or training. Um, so I did that. And then I was freelance slash unemployed for a bit, um, doing shifts at PA and various, you know, night shifts at nationals and that kind of thing. And then I got a job at the New Statesman um, quite in that sort of first year. Uh, but as a kind of editorial assistant office manager type person which I did for I think about nine months and just used it as an opportunity to like see as much as possible of how this because I wanted to do political journalism like how does it work and how does one 
do it <laughs> in quote marks. And then a job opening came up at a new small magazine monthly called Total Politics, which I applied for. And I think there were about four or five rounds of interviews. And, you know, it seemed it seemed like the process went on forever, but eventually I did get that job. And that was for me a real kind of turning point because that was the first job. I think my title was staff writer. Like I was actually there to write things. And although it was a small magazine and, you know, not very well known or anything, and it was written for the Westminster audience, that was its USP. It wasn't necessarily something you were going to pick up in Smith's, but if you worked in Westminster, you want to, to be reading it and you know I got to interview cabinet ministers and I did all this kind of stuff which I think at a bigger publication they would never have let me near the health secretary or anything like that but because it only had a staff of three I got to do all that kind of thing and you know that went pretty well for a couple of years and then the new statesman hired me back to be their web editor and I basically did that job or a variant of it at the new statesman until I went freelance when you do one of these kind of almost project managery type jobs that is dressed up as editorial at a legacy publication, you're not encouraged to write. Nobody's interested in your writing. So I felt like I'd reached a sort of level of seniority without actually having kind of the clips to back it up almost. Um, yeah, so I just felt a bit like, well... I'm finding it difficult to get sort of the kind of magazines with the kind of budgets for the sort of pieces I want to write. But there are publishers that will apparently take a book from me. So maybe I'll just jump straight into that. Um, and uh, it was definitely challenging. Like, I think it was probably the most testing thing I've done in terms of like the actual writing of it. But and I still think that maybe it looks a bit weird from the outside that like you can find short blogs and articles that I've written and then you can either and then you can jump from that to reading a 90,000 word book and there's sort of nothing in between. But um, I don't think I'll be the only person sort of roughly of my age in that situation, to be honest, because I just think that old idea that maybe you become a long form article writer and then you graduate to writing books, that, that just doesn't exist anymore. A lot of, not all, but in some cases, the kind of publications that do still have money to spend on long form writing they're overwhelmed with people wanting to do it. And also some of those people perhaps have other sources of income that mean they don't need to be paid properly for it, which is always attractive, but difficult for those of us who don't have that. And then there's also the fact that, I mean, I always found it really difficult, but if you've worked in any media publication and you've seen the inside of the website stats, you know that a lot of the time that's not the stuff people read. Um, we uh, at the New Statesman we perennially used to people get people complaining whenever we did you know like a kind of more light-hearted piece about pop culture or something there would always be Facebook comments being like has the magazine of George Orwell thus descended to this where's your long read about the like gritty horrors of austerity and I used to think to myself well we do also do the long reads about the gritty horrors of austerity but you don't read them I know you don't because I can see the stats ditto all of the um, very important reporting about Syria. People just don't read it. Um, so having seen that from the inside, I do know why there is fewer opportunities to write that stuff. Um, but I think, you know, as someone who wants to be a writer, in quote marks, that's, it's still a bit galling. You know, journalism has ended up in this dreadful bind where a lot of the advertising revenue is dependent on volume. 
um, thereby pushing publications to do things that generate volume. Um, it's just you therefore have to either have a, a sort of mixed model or you have to somehow have the ability to say, well, we could use our editor's capacity to run 15 blogs about this today or she could edit one 6,000 word piece about the war in Syria um, and you have to you know have the guts and the backing as an editor to be able to stand up and say the Syria piece is worth doing um, even though it will make a fraction of the advertising revenue that the other stuff would. Caroline tells me about her soon-to-be-published first book The Way to the Sea. It comes out on the 6th of June 2019 and it's a kind of hybrid memoir, history, a bit of a look at culture and science as well, all about the Thames estuary, the region of the River Thames, sort of after London, but before it meets the sea. And it's partly about, it's the part of the world where I grew up. Um, my parents were immigrants from South Africa who built their own boat and sailed it to Britain. And um, that's the area where they ended up and where we still sailed on that boat they built when I was a child and stuff. So the whole book is really about this area as a place where people arrive and depart for different reasons and how it's a very uh, superficially unattractive landscape. It's very flat and grey and muddy and quite smelly in places. Um, but I sort of grew up loving it and other people who've arrived there in that similar way do as well. So that's that's really what it's all about. <laughs> One of the things my sister and I both talk about a lot is that we're sort of like that thing of, you know, you're cursed to live in interesting times. We're cursed to have much more interesting and adventurous parents than we are ourselves. Um, so my parents will not actually be at the book launch or any of the events relating to the release of this book because they will be in Canada sailing their boat there. And then it took them three months to get from, they lived in Cape Town, from Cape Town to the UK, um, stopping, they stopped at various sort of islands along the way, the Ascension Islands and the Azores and stuff. So it wasn't all nonstop. Um, and then, yeah, they kind of, they didn't, when they set out, they weren't necessarily intending to stay in Britain forever. Um, they thought maybe it would be like a two or three year career break see what their options were decide i mean i think they they were seriously considering just becoming nomads who sailed around the world but um for whatever reason they decided to get jobs once they got to britain so they could kind of top up the funds a bit and then they just never left again they moved in their early 30s they you know relatively recently crossed over the point where they'd lived longer in the uk than they they ever had in south africa um and this is part of what i was sort of trying to explore in the book in that because obviously they you know my parents are white so even living in apartheid South Africa, they had a relatively okay experience <laughs> compared to a lot of people. Um, part of the reason why they left is because they hated the politics so much. But then when they came to the UK, again, they had a very, well, a relatively positive immigration experience because they were white and they spoke English as their native languages and all that kind of thing. Um, but there's still sort of some less easy to pin down kind of cultural ways in which they you know, they sort of look, quote, British or whatever, but they, you know, they have no idea what was on television here in the 80s and all that kind of thing. Like, they're just some kind of cultural touchstones that they just don't have, um, which I've, is really interesting. Um, and as a result, I don't have them either. And very, even now, very occasionally, my husband will be like, oh, you know, this thing from children's TV. And I'll be like, what? Nope, never heard of it. Um, and that's just still that legacy of like, we don't quite have the like full British background in that way. 
Caroline was an early adopter of podcast listening, starting with the Times newspaper's The Bugle podcast back in 2008. So I think I first started listening to podcasts in maybe about 2008, which was while I was an undergraduate. And it was around the time when I was first, the thought was first coalescing that I think I want to be a journalist. And embarrassingly, the best way I could think of to convince everyone around me that I was serious about being a journalist was I would read a serious newspaper every day. So I started buying The Times um, and reading it cover to cover every day. And The Times had just started doing podcasts and they were advertising a podcast called The Bugle, which was a comedy podcast with a current affairs and comedy podcast with Andy Zaltzman and John Oliver. And to be honest, the reading of the Times every day was kind of getting me down. It was a lot. Um, and, <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I think I decided the Times was the most serious on the basis that it was kind of the boringest and the, um, the most sort of like official feeling because it had like the court register in it and all of that. Um, it's also the paper that my great aunt and uncle used to read and they were like very serious and well-informed people so that was that was my reasoning yeah and also the fact that I thought that if I read a newspaper cover to cover every day that that would somehow convince people that I was cut out to be a journalist I mean obviously reading a newspaper if you want to be a journalist is a very good first step but it was I wasn't doing it to learn I was doing it for the kind of outward confirmation it was very weird um but yeah so I started listening to the bugle um which was a kind of light-hearted take on the week's events as a better and more amusing way to consume the times um and i really liked it that was the first podcast i don't think i'd even really heard of podcasts as a thing before that um you know i had to download them on itunes and then load them onto my ipod i didn't have an iphone did iphones even exist then yet i don't think they did quite yet um and yeah so my listening really just started from there and went on and i've been listening to far too many podcasts than i would care to name ever since really um and then in terms of actually making them myself, I think it's always been my way just when I come across something that I think I could do, I want to have a go at it. So I'd always fancied having a try. And then um, when I worked at the New Statesman as web editor, I was still listening to a lot of podcasts. A lot of publications that I read were starting to launch their own podcasts. And I just felt strongly like, well, if other places are doing it why can't we and so I sort of made this pitch to the bosses there saying like we should have our own podcast it would be great for uh you know driving new subscribers and all of this stuff and their response was like yeah sure if you can do this at no cost to the publication and it won't interfere with your other work feel free so that's how the first new statesman podcast came into being and it went well um I definitely learned an awful lot in launching it and as we went on doing it and got better at producing and editing and all of that kind of stuff um I was sort of frantically educating myself about that stuff in my spare time and then we launched other podcasts it went well and then when it sort of got to the point in 2017 when I was wanting to go freelance and I was having discussions with the editor about how I could still be involved in the magazine even though I was relocating out of London and he said well why don't you take charge of the podcasts why don't we for the first time have somebody whose job it is to actually just look after the podcasts and um, you know make them the best that they could be so that was how I ended up my first job 
you know, working full time on podcasts really came about six years after I first started doing them, really. But that was up until that point, they were always just folded in amongst the other things that my job contained. Here, Caroline tells me how podcast scripting is a kind of backwards process. Don't I know it? I'm reading this from my podcast script right now, which I've just written after editing the whole podcast episode. So that's how it works. I've personally experienced this with writing the scripts for She Done It because it's all scripted. So when I, I interview someone, I transcribe their interview and then I write the script around the quotes from them that I want to include. And so I write and record my voice and then I splice it together with theirs. And I realised very quickly that my natural writing style, which is for people to read, is far too wordy and complicated to be read realistically on mic. So I just have to you know, pare everything back, keep the beats of the story very, very simple, keep the sentences short, keep the words to ones that I can easily say without sounding ridiculous. And I've started doing that now with stuff that I'm writing even that even isn't for me to say on mic because I think it it's not always what's demand the style that's demanded but I do think a lot of the time it's better I am being very ruthless about what is needed and what isn't um so yeah in that way it's definitely made me better at storytelling one thing that I think you do have to do which happened to me quite early on when I started doing podcasting at the New Statesman is you just have to get over your inner revulsion at hearing your own voice um I now slightly worryingly edit my own voice almost as if it's just another person's like I don't even really identify it as mine um, which probably presages some terrible like split personality problem but it does mean I don't have that horrible cringe that I used to get when I used to have to transcribe my own interviews and stuff like that Um, but yeah I always say that to people who say oh I want to start a podcast and sometimes I think I'm a bit blunt about it I say well are you prepared to do it every week for the rest of your life um And a lot of the time the answer is no, I'm not prepared to do it every week for the foreseeable future, in which I kind of say, well, maybe you shouldn't do it then. Um, Because it is something that rewards consistency. And, you know, there's a difference, I think, between people who do a podcast just for fun and people who do it because ultimately they're interested in some kind of professional networking or advancement of course but if you are at all interested in the latter it is a big time commitment and I do think somewhere along the way this myth that it was really easy and low effort crept in and I don't quite know how. Karen is completely right that podcast making being easy is a myth it's not easy I'm sorry to tell you I mean this entire process has been a lot But there's nothing quite as joyous as publishing a completed episode. I'm going to experience that feeling in about mm, 10 minutes, I think. I'm pretty optimistic. Here, Caroline outlines how to submit your pod to her for possible review in the browser. Take a look at Twitter too, and you'll find the form there. Um, So I'm interested in podcasts that surprise me. That's my biggest thing you know there's so much out there that is so similar so whenever you do come across something that is surprising or pleasing to the ear that's always delightful and I always want to pass on the recommendation and then also stuff that has a good story behind it as well so uh, you know, an interesting person who's making it for an interesting reason is always more intriguing to me than someone who is just you know, like 
well, I have this job at this radio production company and they decided to release this as a podcast instead. I'm always more interested in like, you know, people who are solo operators somewhere out there in the world. You've just got a burning thing they want to tell everybody. That's always more interesting to me. So yeah, telling a good story behind it. Then well edited. What you're saying about editing really resonates. I just think you get such... You get such a short time to ingratiate yourself with a new potential listener. You owe it to them to make it the tightest and best thing it can possibly be. So time spent editing stuff is never time wasted, in my opinion. And it can often make all the difference between whether I decide to recommend something or subscribe than if I don't. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um Oh, I think probably a really well-articulated idea is a good thing that a lot of people overlook. So that that whole kind of what's traditionally called pre-production process, where before you turn the microphone on, how hard have you thought about what's actually going to happen in your podcast? If you met a stranger on the street and they asked you what your podcast is about, could you explain it in one sentence? If not, you probably haven't done enough work to hone it down. And I think you can really tell when people have done that work. And that always just strikes me really positively as well. Thanks to Caroline Crampton for speaking to me about all things storytelling. I'm just sad that I didn't ask for the name of a parent's boat. So, uh, yeah, please help me out on that one, Caroline. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Freelance Pod. If you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at freelancepod. On Twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.